Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Biden White House's first state visit with President Macron of France, not only representing the United States' oldest ally, but the leadership of Europe, now that Angela Merkel has stepped down. Joining us to discuss today's White House press conference with the two leaders, as well as what they have likely been discussing in private, is David Andelman, a contributor to CNN, twice winner of the Deadline Club Award, and a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and the Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy Strategy and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. Formerly a correspondent for the New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, he runs the Substack blog Andelman Unleashed, and we will discuss his article at CNN, Why Putin Would Want a Truce, and another at NBC News, State Dinner Niceties Can't Erase Simmering U.S.-France Tensions. Then, with the Senate voting 80-15 to 15 to avert a rail strike after voting down a bill pushed by progressives to provide seven days of paid sick leave per year for railway workers, we will speak with Nelson Lichtenstein, Distinguished Professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor and Democracy and is the author or editor of 16 books, including a biography of the labor leader Walter Ruther and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business and The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology and Imagination. Then finally, we'll assess the extent to which we are less of a democracy and more of a plutocracy, not just because money dominates our politics, since those with the most of it have the most influence, but more importantly, the control of our information space by a few tech billionaires like Zuckerberg and Musk, whose social media platforms are the means through which most Americans get their news and information. Joining us is Jeffrey Winters, a professor in the political science department at Northwestern University, where he specializes on oligarchs and elites, spanning a range of historical and contemporary cases, including ancient Athens and Rome, medieval Europe, the United States, as well as Indonesia, Singapore, and the Philippines. He's the author of Oligarchy, and his forthcoming book is Domination Through Democracy. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now, David Andelman, who's a contributor to CNN, twice the winner of the Deadline Club Award and a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, for a sign 1919 in The Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy, Strategy, and a History of Wars That Might Still Happen. He's formerly a correspondent for The New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, and he runs the Substack blog Andelman Unleashed. 
Annie has an article at NBC News, State Dinner Niceties Can't Erase Simmering U.S.-France Tensions. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Andelman. Good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, David. And there's the first uh, Biden White House state dinner tonight, as you mentioned in your article, where there'll be niceties, but there's also a fairly serious uh, subtext to do with France is concerned about the Inflation Reduction Act subsidizing American electric car production at the expense of competition in Europe. It came up in the press conference, uh, and there were some fairly long answers, particularly in French, to the French reporters from Macron. But of course, uh, Ukraine also dominated uh, the press conference, and Macron was very articulate in answering questions to an NPR reporter in English about what would happen if the U.S. stopped supporting Ukraine, given the truculence of the Republicans? I thought he was quite powerful in his answer. So what did you take away from the press conference, David? Well, uh, what I took away from it is there are, there are certainly a number of areas of, of agreement uh, between the two countries. There's no question about that. Ukraine is an area of complete agreement. Well, not complete agreement. It's complete agreement as it stands right now. And, and going forward, of course, is where we could hit some rough patches, and I can get back to that in a minute. But um, for the moment, obviously, uh, you know, the two, two of the leading democracies in the world, uh, United States and France, uh, where democracy was really invented in both cases um, uh, 200 years ago, um, that, that's, that's, that's a, 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 an, a given. So there's no question about that. What is not a given, necessarily, are some of the other issues that divide them. And, and so once we step back from, and they spent a lot of time on Ukraine, because it's nice to spend time on things that you really agree with. But they also came out with an eight-page single-space statement just before this happened, which I've had a chance to go through. And it was a lot of the same, really the same concepts that were in the press conference as well. They obviously had agreed on a few things. But there was, some, there was a lot of things that didn't, they didn't quite get there, shall we say, um, one of the things, uh, let me just run down a couple of things that, that struck me about what Macron said. He said, we want to build, uh, we want to rebuild strong industry here. You want, you, he said to Biden, excuse me, he said to President Biden, you want to build, rebuild strong industry here. France wants to do the same. He didn't necessarily say in partnership or in competition, but clearly it's a question of, is that going to work if there isn't some kind of a partnership? It, is it going to is it going in is it in fact somehow going to work in any fashion if there's still a sense of competition and you know Macron went to Capitol Hill uh, yesterday and he heard some uh, I'm sure some some very um, choice terms from uh, words from some of the Republicans especially and the Democrats as well about the um, the uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act the IRA as it's called um, uh, which which the French had just and the Europeans, the Germans as well, are just beside themselves over because of the Buy America provisions and a whole lot of other things like that. And, and none of this was really resolved in this. He said there are going to be ongoing technical discussions. Well, that's a good way of saying we can't agree on anything. We'll sweep it under the carpet for the moment. Uh, let's set our, some of our Sherpas and whatever to work on, uh, you know, our, our technical geniuses. And maybe we can just kick this can down the road far enough so that people will forget about it. But there's not any sense that there's going to be some kind of a road, a path towards some kind of agreement. Macron turned said, I'm going to go back to my discussions with the European Commission, with the Germans especially. He's going to see um, Chancellor Schultz right after this. That's, that's, those are all issues that have not been resolved. Yeah, by the way, on, on Ukraine, there's, there's a lot of things that haven't been resolved as far as the, I call it the après-guerre, the after-war. 
what's going to happen? Eventually, there will be an end to the war. And the question is, who's going to be footing the bill and, 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 and really taking the, carrying the load for rebuilding Ukraine? This is a country that has been all but completely destroyed. I mean, the way basically, unfortunately not with nuclear weapons so far, but basically the way uh, Germany and, and, and Japan were destroyed at the end of World War II, it's, it's, it will become virtually a non-functioning country. It has to be rebuilt. And, and so I don't think any of these issues have really been resolved at all. They have, you know, managed to get some agreement on, on certain things that were, you know, very good. You know, France and the U.S. stand as strong as ever for Ukraine and against Russian aggression. We stand together and, and so on. And, and that's great. And, and they should say those kinds of things. But I'm afraid about some of the other underlying issues that have not been resolved yet. Well, there's a lot of money, billions and billions of Russian money frozen in, in European banks as well as American banks, and there's a lot of talk about using that money to rebuild uh, Ukraine. But just to follow oh, sure. up on... And, and in fact, some oh. European countries have already started actually seizing the assets and, in fact, using them to subsidize um, uh, the, the help they're giving to Ukraine, which I think is, is really pretty neat. Uh, the United States hasn't done that yet, but uh, that would be a nice next step, I must say. Right. But in terms of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, that's got the Europeans upset because of subsidies for manufacture of electric cars and, and also chip manufacturing, why can't the Europeans do something similar? In other words, make massive investments to catch up to the lag, and particularly in chip manufacturers, which is dominated by Taiwan. Oh, well, they, they certainly can. But, you know, what's interesting is you have to, in some respects, you have to learn history in order to, Make sure you're not condemned to repeat it. Um, the back if, if when Airbus was just starting out, you may re recall Airbus has to become be competitive to uh, to Boeing. Uh, the Europeans were giving these huge subsidies, government subsidies to Airbus, and Boeing being of course being a private company, Airbus was a consortium of uh, German and British and uh, German and French and, and Spanish um, and some British money as well, but government money. They were it was basically a government um, operation. And the governments were supporting, were, were subsidizing um, Airbus. And, and the Americans were furious. Boeing was furious over this. How can they do that? How can you subsidize? It's not fair trade and all of this sort of thing. Well, now it's, it's the shoe is on the other foot. And you know, so it, how is that going to work? I, I, I think subsidies are almost as important as anything, any other aspect of the, of the free trade discussion right now. Well, obviously, there's a lot of support over here for moving to electric vehicles, and you would think that the impetus would be even greater in Europe, given Russia's weaponizing of oil and gas, which has created a tremendous problem for the winter in Europe, in Western Europe, particularly for the Germans. It seems like the French nuclear program is coming to the rescue, to some extent, of the Germans. So, clearly, you can't blame anybody for wanting to convert to a green future. And that, we've heard a lot of that from green parties in Europe. So I, I just don't get... It seems a little hypocritical, these complaints. Well, no, I mean, to a degree, I guess you're right, Dan. But um, remember this. Um, the, the European car manufacturers would be nowhere without being able to sell their cars in the United States. And, and I think what they're afraid of is that they're, they're not going to be able to sell their cars in the United States because there's going to be so much of this Buy America stuff that was built into the IRA, the... Um, Inflation Reduction Act, that is going to really prevent them from uh, having a level playing field to sell their cars. Look, um, 
my my son is lives in Paris. He he married a French girl. I have a ten year old Franco American grandson, and they just bought a new all electric car. Well, they were looking at Tesla, but um, because you know a it's American and b it's a very good car, they wound up buying a Jaguar all electric car, a European car, and and they love it, right? But um, if the, the question would be, what if what if they didn't have that option? Um, or what if Jaguar didn't have the option of being able to sell their cars in America? I mean, that's, I think, what everybody's saying. Let's make it a uniform playing field where everybody will be able to sell cars wherever they can make the best cars and make the best argument for someone buying them. Right. Well, it's clearly, uh, you can make the case that almost all of the car manufacturers have been lagging, and that's why Tesla is such a successful company. But, of course, now the owner of Tesla is is sullying his own brand, I'm afraid, because of his outrageous behavior with his purchase of uh, Twitter. And, and that's not going to go away either, by the way. And, and the uh, Europe, I was just over in Paris, and I just came back actually about two hours ago, and, and everybody's talking about, Tesla, about um, the Twitter over there. And, and they're, they're, the Europeans are, are really, they're looking to... They're, willing to, they're looking to really crack down on Twitter, and they have the ability to do that. Um, they're particularly upset because the um, Twitter offices in, in, in Paris and in Brussels have been entirely shuttered, completely closed. So they have no way, really, of, of policing the, um, the kind of uh, uh, you know, free flow of information of, you know, and, and uh, sanitizing Twitter that uh, the Europeans really have insisted on. So it's going to be, serious. It's going to be very interesting to see how it, it may very well be that Twitter has its first major headaches in Europe. Well, back to Ukraine, as you say, David Edelman, that this was an area of agreement. And of course, the two leaders would rather stress agreements than uh, disagreements, even though uh, clearly there are real problems over the Inflation Reduction Act. Earlier in the White House Rose Garden, Macron said, we need to become brothers in arms once more in relationship to supporting Ukraine. What kind of military support is France furnishing Ukraine? Well, not as much as the United States is, certainly, but you have to remember, first of all, they're a much smaller country than we are, and, and their, their military and their military-industrial complex is much smaller. So they really have, I think, I think all of the countries in Europe, except, you know, you might say Germany hasn't really been pushing, pulling its, 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 its full weight. Um, although now I think they're beginning to get more and more into that now because there's so much, you know, um, concern among the German voters, German people, that they're not doing enough. So I think that may begin to right itself also. But um, look, they, they have a much smaller military-industrial complex than we are. I think they're going all out. Um, but, but obviously there are people on Capitol Hill and so on who would say, you know, gee, uh, they should really be, uh, look at all the money we're throwing at this. Well, we are a much, much bigger economy, and we have a much bigger stockpile of arms that we've built up over the years that we can draw on. So I, I find that a little bit difficult to um, to swallow, frankly. Um, so let's see. I mean, I think it's worth seeing how it goes forward. I think there are efforts on both sides to try to uh, right that ship. And I think, as I say, that's that's one thing that they can really agree on. But in terms of diplomacy, of course, Macron, you know, stuck his neck out, really, in reaching out to Putin. You recall him sitting at the other end of that long table in a fruitless effort to um, prevent the war, which is now turned into a complete nightmare and the destruction of a European country. 
as you mentioned earlier, it's going to be end up looking like Germany after World War Two and Japan after World War Two. So, and of course, at the press conference today, President Biden said he'd be willing to talk with Putin if he expressed any interest in ending the war. Where do you think that stands now in terms of Macron's ability to bring Putin to some kind of negotiating table or at least bring him to some sensible approach? I think that right now people have on on all sides in Europe, except perhaps maybe for the the new far-right government in Italy and to a degree the uh, right-wing government in Sweden and and certainly the Hungarians, um, Viktor Orban, uh, the rest of the Europeans are all basically thinking alike, and, and as 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 Biden and as Macron think, that is to say that you can't talk to him at this point, if Putin. Uh, he is he really believes that he can win the war uh, simply by perhaps by just destroying the country, and and he's not acting rationally. He's certainly not acting democratically in any stretch of the imagination or any stretch of the definition of that term. So it's I think it's. it's, it's Negotiations with Putin at this point are really just, they're fruitless. I, I did a, um, uh, I had a commentary that I wrote for CNN Opinion, I write for them weekly, and, and I talked about how, um, uh, you know, they, they, um, they, we simply can't negotiate with someone like Putin. You can't, it's, um, it's, it's just not acceptable. And, and Putin, frankly, the best thing for Putin right now would be a truce. He would love a truce. He'd be able to rebuild his forces. He'd be able to start really, he's, he's working his factories there, his arms factories, now on two and three shifts, producing um, artillery um, rounds and that sort of thing. If he got if he got a six-month truce, oh, my God, he'd be able to resume, you know, the war in, in, in just in, in horrifically. So I think that's, all of those kinds of moves towards negotiations would only play into Putin's hands at this point. It's interesting to note that um, Angela Merkel recently said that she tried to <laughs> get, she tried to get some sense into uh, Putin's head, but she failed. Yeah. But it seems like the German Social Democrats have really also been totally feckless and really bought into this Wandeldurst Handel idea of peace through trade. Do you think they've really finally shaken themselves loose? You mentioned earlier that the German people are demanding more help for Ukraine than perhaps the government is uh, providing. Oh, I think so, and I think they're, they're really beginning to realize that they need to give them some of the heavy weapons that they need as well. And Angela Merkel is an interesting case in this point. I, I knew one of her um, top military advisors fairly well, and he once told me that when she was chancellor, she used to call Putin at least once every couple of weeks just to talk to him, even if they had nothing else to talk even if they had nothing to negotiate, just to talk to him, because she used to say, I want him to hear another voice in his ear other than the voice of the echo chamber in the Kremlin that's telling him the same thing over and over again. And and I'm not sure that Schultz is, he doesn't have that kind of a, he's never had that kind of a rapport um, with Putin. And, and mind you, um, Angela Merkel, Putin speaks fluent German because he was a KGB officer in, in East Germany back in the, in the good old days. So um, they really had a lot in common and they could... He listened to her. I don't think Putin, I don't think there's a single leader in the West that Putin would, would listen to remotely right now. Well, the U.S., uh, the Biden administration, are leaning on the Chinese and hoping that they can get him to see some sense here yeah, and well, stop this war. I don't know about Good that. Good luck they with their, that. Have, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and Xi, Jinping's got, Xi Jinping's got his hands full with uh, his people finally fed up with 
the draconian I, I, COVID lockdown. It's beginning to look like that, uh, yeah. absolutely. So just in closing then, what's your sort of wrap-up, if you will, David? Not that this big state dinner is going to be tonight, the first state dinner for uh, the Biden administration. And it's the second state dinner, by the way, <laughs> for Macron since... Trump already hosted him as well, so he's he's getting priority, isn't he? So, uh, is he getting anything more beyond pomp and ceremony? Oh, I think he is. Remember, one of the things that one of um, Macron and I know Macron fairly well. One of Macron's priorities has always been he wanted to take over and assume the mantle of kind of the titular leadership of Europe after uh, Angela Merkel retired, and and he's really he's. He was really on the way to doing that, and then all of a sudden he slightly got derailed when um, the um, it was uh, they turned out the parliament um, it wound up in a hung parliament. Uh, so it's, he, he lost control of parliament in the June parliamentary election. So uh, I think he's really still trying to um, trying to carve a role for himself in Europe that goes broad more broadly than just uh, France. And I think that you know the U.S. could be a good partner for him in this, and they should do everything they can, they should really lean over backwards to do that because he really is a force for the future and for positive change in Europe, I think. Well, David Edelman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thanks very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with David Edelman, who's a contributor to CNN, a twice winner of the Deadline Club Award and a chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and the Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy, Strategy, and this History of Wars that Might Still Happen. He's formerly a correspondent for the New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, and he runs the Substack blog Andelman Unleashed. And he has an article at NBC News, State Dinner Niceties Can't Erase Simmering U.S.-France Tensions. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into the Senate vote today to avert a rail strike with a specialist on Labour in an interview we recorded just before the Senate vote today. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nelson Lichtenstein, who's a distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author and editor of 16 books, including a biography of the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, the Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology, and Imagination. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nelson Lichtenstein. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. And clearly, President Biden is trying to do everything he can to avoid a railway strike that would start on December the 9th using the Railway Labor Act's authority. The House has passed uh, two bills, which, of course, have an agreement, but four out of the 12 unions representing more than half of the unionized freight and rail employees have voted that agreement down. So it's now before the Senate and progressives in the Senate, led by Senator Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, 
they want to adopt a version of the agreement that include paid sick days. It's not quite sure whether they'll even have Joe Manchin on board. A couple of Republicans, Josh Hawley and Cornyn, have suggested they might go along with adding sick days. So where does it stand now, do you think? Well, it stands in a kind of fragile moment. Uh, I mean, if the if the, in the Senate, just to be sort of parliamentary about it, if in the Senate there are two bills, one one sort of ending the strike, you know, using the word labor railway labor act uh, authority, and the other uh, saying, oh yes, get, let's have six seven uh, sick days or something. Well, the one will pass that is ending the strike, and the other one probably won't. Or, or I, I can't imagine a bunch of Republicans. Uh, actually coming in, in on that. I mean, maybe a couple, but in a kind of opportunistic way. But I, I, I don't think, I, I think that, that would be fraught. If the two were combined into one bill in which, you know, you you ended the strike and also at the same time had the seven um, sick days, then you'd have much, much more possibility of, uh, of passing in the Senate and then forcing the House well, there'd be a reconciliation, and then the House would probably agree with it. But I, I don't I actually I don't know I don't know what the what the parliamentary situation. But let, I think let's talk, the, the larger thing here is that there's a larger issue here, which is um, um, much bigger. Which is that, he, that here is a, a a right to strike has just been abrogated by a president who claims to be the most pro labor president. Uh, in in the in in the well in, in many many decades and um, it was totally unnecessary. This is a self-inflicted wound on uh, Biden's part uh, because what they could have done is either in his um, uh, in in, a, in using the Railway Labor Act just said okay we're going to stop the strike but in but we're read, read, read uh, we're we're here at the contract and the contract's going to include various sick days and things of that sort and that's and that would have passed easily if the, if the administration had been behind that or secondly which I think would have been better uh, to let the strike take place um, the strike would the strike these strike railroad strikes are, are always very short very sharp because once the strike is taking place. Then there's overwhelming interest in, in resolving it, um, and resolving it on the on the in the on the basis of, of that would be better for the workers. And and I, one more thing, here's why a, a strike would have been a good thing. Sure, it would shut down the the, the economy for for a while. But we just had a pandemic in which the government shut down the economy, you know, ten ten or a hundredfold more. So so this is not unprecedented. But secondly, a strike would demonstrate the power of labor. And this would have a very salutary impact on every barista, on every Amazon worker, on every teaching assistant, uh, you know, on every other worker, retail worker, etc. Uh, you know, showing yes, we can do it. Labor can do it. And this is a this is a moment right now, unprecedented, really, in many ways, in which there's tremendous public support for for the labor movement and even for strikes. So that opportunity. Uh, is is possibly is probably lost, uh, and I think that would have been you know a strike can have a a, a very uh, a, a, um, uh, morale building uh, impact uh, you know on the rest of the working class. So you're arguing then, uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, that under the Railway Labor Act, that Biden could have had the House include because one of the yes. uh, the unions will agree to just four sick yeah. days a year, which is pretty minimal. Yeah. And then talking yeah. about yeah. Yes, seven. He could, he, yes, he, yeah, he could have done that. See, before, in, in September, well, the elections were approaching, and uh, they, okay, and they had a, a panel 
uh, which was set up, and they and they sort of uh, that was sort of imposed. But I think at that time, the, even the railroad thought, okay, look, the election, we don't want to mess up the elections. Uh, and then and then the Democrats do well in the elections, you know, and then. Uh, you know, the, uh, many of the, I, even at the time in September, many workers were like, we're going to have a strike later on in December. And then, uh, yeah, yes, under the Railway Labor Act, um, the Congress is the ultimate authority and, rec- and can, can impose any sort of deal they want. Now, usually it's some panel is, you know, there and they, they adopt that. But anything, and, and clearly this, the sick day question was, it was, a, was a hot button issue. And Biden could easily have accommodated that by just simply inserting it. And I don't think there would have been any, there would have been no opposition. I mean, the railroads might, might have, but, but they, they, they really, their opposition would, would, would not have been uh, sort of disp- dispositive in this situation. And so, it's an opportunity lost. I don't know why they did that. I, I mean, so, I, 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 especially with Marty Walsh as Secretary of Labor. I mean, who, who, who certainly should have his finger on this, on the pulse of of, of, the, of, of these of these you know railway workers. You know, I mean, he and I, I just I think it's a I don't I don't I have no idea what but he was going through his mind and his operation. But he should have known better. Yeah, because the railway companies are making record profits. Four days a year, sick days, it's pretty minimal. And the, and the bill, that the second bill that went out of the House that's now at the Senate has asked for seven uh, sick days. And Congress people, senators and congressmen, they have unlimited sick days. Well, right. And, lots, and other people have you know, more, much more flexibility. What the railroads have done is over the last decade, they've cut their workforce by between anywhere between 25% and and. and and a third, and what they've created is this sort of um, uh, seniority roster where where you're 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 on call, and in theory, when you when you've done your shift, then you go to the bottom of the roster, and that means that you uh, have more free time. And and so, in in, in in when there was a more workers working for the railroad, you know, when you're at the bottom of the list, then you know that you had free time and you could you know schedule things. But by cutting the workforce. Uh, people who go to the bottom of the list are almost instantly called back to work. So, so there's, you know, so there's very, very little free time, and that means you, you need to you need to create actual, well, for doctors obviously and, and medical leave that's essential, uh, which can kind of uh, override the list as it were. Which you know, it's you know, uh, and you're on the list, you're you're required to be ready for service. So that's that's what it's. That, but the real pr- issue is that the uh, railroads have cut the, cut the workforce by a quarter to a third. And that creates all sorts of other problems, by the way, um, morale and, and, and people are quitting and, 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 and service has, has gotten worse. So one of the things not mentioned recently is that many of the shippers, that is the chemical companies and the food processing companies and, and, and the uh, uh, retailers, are really pissed off at the railroads. <laughs> you know, and, and, and in fact, in, in testimony earlier in the year, uh, these, you know, these are industry associations. They, they, they supported the railway, the rail work, the railway workers in their demand, uh, you know, for, for an expanded roster of, of workers and, and more days off. They, they supported it. <laughs> anyway, which is very unusual, but they did. So you don't think there's any way that Bernie Sanders is going to pick up 10 Republican. Well, it could. I mean, it could. I, I, again, I, right now at this moment, I don't. We don't. I don't know. I haven't seen seen the paper this morning. Whether he's been able to secure uh, support from um, uh, some of these 
it's possible Republicans who actually, you know, they're kind of opportunistic about it and demagogic about it. Like Marco Rubio said, oh, yeah, I'm in favor of the railroad workers and not the railway you know, union bosses. I mean, what what kind of distinction is that? I mean, that that's but anyway, um, there, there could be an opportunistic. Uh, I mean, Josh Hawley, for example, wrote this op-ed about the Republican Party should be a workers' party. I mean, I mean, his his definition of what that meant was basically a cultural, a culturally, you know, retrograde, you know, party which you know spoke to the most misogynistic uh, impulses of, of white male workers. But but um, and so I don't I don't really give that much credibility. But nevertheless, who knows what they, what they may they may try to for whatever reason they, they it's possible they could decide to, to ditch this bill and, and maybe they wanted to embarrass Biden in the process. Huh? And actually frankly I'd like to embarrass Biden. I I think I hope that Bernie succeeds. I, I think Biden deserves to be embarrassed. Well Bernie sort of called out the Republicans, you know, saying you talk a good game yeah. about being pro worker, so now it's time yeah. to pony up. So whether he can yeah, right. name and shame them into acting, I'd, yeah. I don't know. But apparently yeah. both Marty Walsh's Labor Secretary and the Transportation Secretary, uh, Buttigieg, are on Capitol Hill at the moment trying to sort yeah. this out. So yeah. it's very hard. Well, I think, to, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was trying to strong arm Democrats to to not go along with Bernie. I, I, I would say that's what they're trying to do. Um, by the way, I, I just mentioned I was I was a group of member of a group of 500 labor historians and scholars who signed a letter which reviewed the whole history of the Railway Labor Act and made the point that uh, you know its its use has more often than not been uh, uh, you know a real um, uh, negative for for labor and uh, you know the, the the railways are still very important and still can can set some some standards for the for the not just for railway workers but for everyone else and uh, you know the, the the presidential authority to use this law which is really quite draconian that is to stop a, a strike what do you do when the, when workers continue striking you put them in jail uh, you know and uh, you know that that means that uh, you know uh, it can set patterns and and it has done that in the 19th century and early 20th century strikes were broken and that set the labor movement back for for decades uh, uh, that that may, I don't think that's going to going to happen right now. But nevertheless, a, a defeat here will be a wet blanket on this kind of labor upsurge we're having um, in the entire logistics industry. And if you include, you know, from the from the ship to the shelf, if you include the the retail sector uh, as part of that stream of of commerce, uh, this is going to have a you know a, a breaking the strike or, or not having the strike is going to be a, a a big negative for all sorts of people. Uh, from longshoremen to uh, truck drivers to retail workers. Well, the railway companies can't have it both ways. They've cut the workforce down to the bone. Yeah. And now they're saying they need everybody on deck and they can't afford to have right, people have, right. have sick days. But people get yeah. sick, so... Yeah, I, I, yeah. Let me ask a larger question. The, the issue of sick days has been raised. I mean, and of course, obviously, you know, if you're sick, and especially after the pandemic, and you have to go to the doctor. But really, it's it's a larger question. And frankly, uh, you know, the the word flexibility is used, and that's always now recent had a pro management meaning that the management wants to have uh, flexible 
uh, uh, its own flexibility to demand that workers show up when they want it. In other words, it's flexible for management, but for, for workers, it's mandatory and there's no flexibility. So I think we need to reverse that and to give you know workers the choice as to whether they show up or not within limits uh, so that, you know, yes, they have to go to a doctor, but maybe they want to go bowling. I mean, what's wrong with that? Uh, you know, I think, I think to, to, you know, a, 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 um, a uh, full life means a certain kind of control over it. And, uh, you know, that's, that, can be, that has been arranged in some industries. The longshoremen have a, have a hiring hall, a kind of list, the same sort of thing. But there they control it. And so the individual longshoremen have much more latitude in whether they want to come to work or not um, and, you know, when, they, when they're eligible to do so. So this, this, could, be, this could easily be arranged. Well, uh, technically it could be arranged easily, easily in, on the railroads and, and actually many other, uh, many other um, uh, kinds of um, workplaces, including Uber, by the way, and, and Lyft, which have in their own way, again, a management-controlled kind of list, uh, which, you know, where they are the ones who determine when workers should come in, and workers are are, are subject to the, to the to this kind of mandatory but seemingly chaotic scheduling, so that that that's a, a task in front of the the country and the labor movement to resolve that. So, just to sort of recap, the most pro-labor president in the longest time, Joe Biden, has basically stabbed the labor movement in the back by he could have in the negotiations with the House over imposing the Railway Act. They could have given at least four sick leave days to placate four of the 12 unions. And then on top of that, you're arguing that a strike could happen and maybe it would be beneficial on December the 9th because that would get everybody's attention. It'd be over very quickly. Now, according to Railway Carriers Trade Group, a shutdown of the nation's railway system would cost the economy as much as $2 billion a day. So we could afford yeah. a couple of billion, but that's your argument. Yeah, that is my argument. Yes, and and uh, I mean, the trade groups are always going to say that, but you know, you you can you can make that up. Uh, and by the way, the Christmas season is all is over. The the the, the goods are in the shop are in the are in the store. This will have no impact on on Christmas shopping. They don't have to say that. It, it would have an impact on what's going on in Easter, not in not in not in not, in, not Christmas. So yes, I'm in favor of that. And sometimes two billion dollars is a is a is a is well worth it if it if it provides a morale boost to millions of workers who are now. Uh, you know, thinking about you know forming a union or going on strike, I think that would be well worth it. So, do you have any idea, just in closing, why Biden did this? I mean, uh... that's well, that's a very good question, and I and I think maybe who knows? Maybe he thought, oh, the election's over. I can, you know, I don't know. I I don't think he's in the in the you know uh, taking cash behind it, you know, from the, from the railroads or something like that. But but uh, you know, or some something. But I just think, well, the railroads, it's over, and and you know, and here's this. Actually, more than a half of all the railway workers who actually, you know, voted against this, against the contract. It was four unions, but they were four bigger unions. So I don't, you know, no, I don't know. I think it was. I think this was one of those things that were that was a, um, um, you know, people make mistakes. You know, they, 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 they don't think the consequences. And I think this is this is going to have egg on its face, and and really is going to tarnish um, uh, the left. The left will be uh, disenchanted. And in fact, one of the things that was brilliant about Biden was he was able to bring the left on board 
you know, well, after his election, during his election, after his election, and then and then last summer, and now the the left, and I, and not just the congressional left, but all sorts of, you know, my grad students, you know, my you know young people uh, are going to be totally dis- disenchanted. This is this is uh, this is a uh, unless something is resolved, uh, you know. But so I think it was it was worse than a mistake. It was a crime and a blunder, you know. Well, Nelson Lichtenstein, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome indeed. I'm glad to be here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Nelson Lichtenstein, who's a distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author or editor of 16 books, including a biography of the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology, and Imagination. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the extent to which we are less of a democracy and more of a plutocracy, and in particular, how a few tech billionaires dominate and control the information space and control the means by which most Americans get their news and information. The workers on the SB line for strikes are out of call. But Casey Jones, the engineer, he wouldn't strike at all. His boiler, it was leaking, and the driver's on the bump. And the engines and the bear, and they were all out of plumb. Casey Jones kept his junk pile running. Casey Jones was working double time. Casey Jones got a wooden medal for being good and faithful on the SB. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jeffrey Winters, a professor in the political science department at Northwestern University, where he specializes on oligarchs and elites spanning a range of historical and contemporary cases, including ancient Athens and Rome, medieval Europe, the United States, as well as Indonesia, Singapore, and the Philippines. He is the author of Oligarchy, and his forthcoming book is Domination Through Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Winters. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeffrey. And before we talk about the American oligarchy, in terms of your new book, Domination Through Democracy, what we had in this last midterm election was not domination through democracy, but deliverance of democracy. So democracy still hangs by a thread in this country. Do you agree? Yeah, I would agree. Um, the, The situation in the United States is one where Democracy has always been blended with uh, oligarchy. That is, wealth power has has been blended with democracy. So it's not that, you know, the argument is never that uh, democracy completely dysfunctions in the U.S. case, um, but but that it is highly highly constrained. Um, and we see moments like uh, the midterms where um, the fact that people vote. Uh, and the fact that uh, you know they engage and they participate, it, it really matters. Um, and that was a it was a breakthrough and very important moment. And the pundits were wrong, and the polling was not really um, indicating uh, things very accurately. So it, it's actually in moments like that that we are reminded of the tremendous importance of. Uh, the vote and participating. Um, but that is, I, I rush to add, that is not the 
the picture broadly. The picture broadly is is actually uh, much much less optimistic. But but those moments are very exciting and they're they're, they're inspiring to people, and that's important. So this country, arguably, I mean, as much as it was founded by religious fanatics, in terms of the American Revolution, the founding fathers, a lot of them were kind of oligarchs in their day. They were large landowners and slave owners, etc. But we've had throughout our history, certainly, and more recently, you know, the Gilded Age at the turn of the 20th century, and, and now we have the new Gilded Age. But I think what's interesting, or perhaps even alarming, about the current oligarchy is the oligarchy out of Silicon Valley that controls so much information, in fact, dominate the information space with Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and in particular now Elon Musk's with Twitter. And something like two-thirds, three-quarters of Americans get their information via Facebook, and I guess to a lesser extent via Twitter, which is now turning into a kind of platform of right-wing lunacy. So do you think that that is the difference between the olig- the threats of the oligarchy here? It's not just that they can buy our politics. They control our information. Yeah, you know, we are we are living in what I call the era of oligarchs um, in the United States. And and one of the differences you mentioned, the Gilded Age, one of the differences uh, between uh, oligarchs in in most of, say, the 20th century um, versus now is that wealth power and incredibly powerful individuals in particular who just can use their their corporate wealth as well, as well as their individual wealth, those actors have, for the most part, tried to remain unseen and invisible. Um, and, and one of the reasons they try to do that is because their power very much distorts society and politics and candidacies. And, uh, and, and so what we are in right now is a, is a kind of in-your-face oligarchy moment. Um, and it was the last time we really saw anything like this was the Gilded Age, or what has sometimes been called the robber baron period. And the reason it got that name at the time was because oligarchs were, again, tremendously visible, very interventionist, um, and working the system uh, to their to their favor. Um, so we are now, once again, in an era where these individuals, Musk and, and Bezos and Zuckerberg and others, are tremendously visible. And one of the things that that does is it, it reminds people that we live in what I call a system of participatory inequality. So we, we are able to participate, um, and we even participate on these platforms that you talked about. Um, we give voice on them and so on, but it is a system of tremendous, une- tremendously unequal power. And, and so that's what we're living in. And, and, and this thing you just mentioned, we're talking about oligarchs now being not just people who back candidates, not just people who fund think tanks, um, not just people who use their wealth to, um, to avoid taxation and so on and so forth, but they are now controlling the information infrastructure of not just this society, but globally. And that is very new. 
Um, and frankly speaking, it's it's risky for oligarchs to be this visible and to be wielding this much control in so few hands. Um, it it produces backlashes, and 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 that backlash um, is very likely coming. Well, while they are controlling the information space, other oligarchs and some of the more mendacious ones, like the Koch brothers, etc., they still are invisible in terms of their money. Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court has allowed oligarchs to be invisible, at least allowed their money to be invisible. And that's had a devastating effect on our politics. Yes. So it's 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 a combination really of both. So the money as power is still operating as it always had, which is through the um, through the halls of Congress, through the ways that people at every level get elected to office, and through wealth management firms who make sure that uh, money is moved offshore into secrecy jurisdictions and so on. All of that is still going on. And the funding of think tanks to make sure that certain judges are the ones who come forward with a particularly conservative agenda. Um, so, so all that is happening. In addition, in what's happening is um, we really see these folks out in the open as well. Not all of them, but enough of them that if you ask the average American, um, you know, do we have oligarchic people who are who are in positions of tremendous power and control in this system to the point where um, they can negate the democratic power of the people? Most, I believe most people would tell you, yes, we we are in that kind of system, uh, and the way that that plays out um, can be. Um, it can be towards something progressive, which is to try to clip the power of oligarchs, but it can also um, be quite reactionary and it can be fascist. It's, there's no easy way to predict which way the anger will go and who will harness it. Well, but what I was saying earlier, Jeffrey Wynn, is that we dodged a bullet in the midterms in terms of real threats to American democracy because uh, Trump's Republican Party were bent on creating through these election deniers a situation where all future elections, Republicans would get to count the vote and if they didn't like the outcome, they would then essentially declare themselves, a, you know, turn America into a one-party state. And there's no question that their hero and their role model is Orban in Hungary, who's done exactly that. So we've dodged that bullet to some extent, but one of the other encouraging things about this recent election was there were a number of ballot initiatives fighting inequality in this country, proposals to tax the rich, build worker power, and make housing and education more affordable. And, I mean, they, they passed. So it seems like the, the American people are slowly waking up to the extent to which the real question in this country is whether or not we have a democracy or a plutocracy. Yes, and, and uh, again, you know, one of the things that people fail to recognize about uh, even Trump's base and the, and the Republican base in, in particular, especially the working class elements of it, is that those folks are extremely angry at um, corporations. They're angry at a global system of trade uh, regimes and, and policies that 
that they feel move jobs away from them to low-cost places around the world with elites and oligarchs in the United States benefiting from those, um, from those kinds of movements. So there is an anger. But the question becomes always, how does that anger get focused? What does it end up attacking? And that's, and, and, and that's why I said a moment ago, it can go either way. It can go in a very fascist way, which is to say, um, you know, I hate the deep state. Why do I hate the deep state, would say a, a, a Trump-based person? Because that system, whether it is in charge, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats in charge, is working against me and against my interests. So they would rather burn it down then try to reform it. That's the, I mean, there's a great deal of anger out there. So what we need to recognize is that the kinds of things you said, initiatives, we had one in Illinois, for example, we had a ballot referendum in which um, the right to be able to organize as a union uh, was, was on the ballot and it passed by a significant majority. That sentiment is out there. Um, certainly what, what the Democrats have to do much better um, is to try to show that they're not an elite uh, um, um, party um, and that they, they actually can reconnect to the unions and to the, to the average citizen, many of whom don't have college educations, but they feel like um, they've, been, they've been left uh, aside. So uh, the, the anger is there against the oligarchs, but it's not clear until you really organize it what direction it's going to go in. So, Jeffrey, I don't think we've entirely dodged the bullet in terms of American fascism. I mean, it, the line was held, the red wave didn't happen, and democracy was preserved. Most of these election deniers trying to take over the election machinery in the country failed to do so, but that doesn't mean they've gone away. And effectively, Donald Trump both controls the Republican Party and, uh, in effect, the House through these far right-wing followers of his, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and company, who seem to dominate the discourse and, and intimidate Kevin McCarthy. So in terms of, of the oligarchy in this country, the plutocracy, do we know what percentage of them would be comfortable with fascism, one-party state? Um, my guess is uh, that they probably don't have fascism on the agenda as something they necessarily want. Um, but, the, the, you know, I don't I'm not sure people are thinking uh, quite at that level. And 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 this is really bubbling up. It's very important to understand that a lot of this is 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 anger bubbling up from below. So, uh, I, you know, we, one of the historical things we can say about fascism is that um, the very rich uh, have have been just fine under most fascist regimes. So so there's no reason to necessarily expect that if. If we did move to fascism in the United States, that our oligarchs would would be, you know, tremendously uncomfortable with it. So, so there's that, that's not an automatic uh, sort of assumption we should make. Um, but I I think you're right. We're not out. We're not out of the dark. Uh, uh, we're not in a in a safety zone. Um, and I think until there are genuine responses to the inequality problems in the United States, the wealth concentration problems, and the fact that there is a loss of legitimacy in our democracy today, um, and and it's very it's a very broad feeling uh, that that people have. I think it's across parties actually. There's a there's a tremendous sense. 
that that the system is dominated by very few people and that a lot of people have lost their voice. That's a dangerous space for us to be in. Um, and and I do think that even if Donald Trump uh, loses uh, control over the Republican Party, uh, the party has now moved to such an extent um, at, at so many levels that um, that the danger is going to continue for quite some time. This is it was an important moment in the midterms, but I, I don't think we're out of the dark. No, in fact, the danger will continue and get worse under Governor DeSantis because he's a more effective fascist in a way. Um, he's totally racist and a kind of political thug in a way. I find him quite uh, dangerous. But it seems to me, just in closing, uh, Jeffrey Winters, that the oligarchy, you know, they can't sell their terrible ideas through politics, through the legislative branch and the executive branch, although they do get away with an awful lot. But they found a way to sell their terrible ideas by capturing the Supreme Court. And you've got people like Leonard Leo who just got $1.6 billion from an, an oligarch, and he's already completely reshaped the American judiciary and the Supreme Court. So it seems to me that the oligarchs have already captured the United States Supreme Court. Oh, this is, this is absolutely true. And, and, and in fact, if we go all the way back to the founders one of the reasons that everyone gathered in Philadelphia way back in, in the late 1780s was precisely because there was a feeling among the founders that democracy had gone too far um, in the states, and they wanted to reshape the American system. In fact, they used the term in Philadelphia during the Constitutional Convention. They said there's an excess of democracy in the United States. And so they restructured the country to have oligarchic institutions like the Supreme Court, where you just have a few people who can negate um, the decisions of uh, of the many. And, and that was specifically designed to make sure that oligarchs and concentrated property could not be challenged democratically. And so that has carried through all the way to the current era. Um, and we now have a very, very right-wing, um, oligarchic, defending, um, power-expanding for the oligarchs um, set of Supreme Court justices in place, and they are going to be there for a very long time. Um, if, if through the legislature, if we don't do something like expand the size of the Supreme Court to leaven uh, the, the, the current extreme position, uh, I think you know, we are we are really looking at a, a, a very long-term period of shocking decisions. Well, Jeffrey Winters, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Winters, who's a professor in the political science department at Northwestern University, where he specializes on oligarchs and elites spanning a range of historical and contemporary cases, including ancient Athens and Rome, medieval Europe, the United States, as well as Indonesia, Singapore, and the Philippines. He's the author of Oligarchy, and his forthcoming book is Domination Through Democracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America Time one night in America